Hello, you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan, where we are joined this week, not only by Sarah, but by her husband, Keith Redmond, who'll be known to some of you, former Fine Gael counsellor, an eminent dentist, and uh, a libertarian <laughs> at large. He is an eminent dentist. Don't laugh. He's the best <laughs> best dentist I know. Um, and uh, he uh, he's also a, 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 a convinced libertarian on which subject we will be having a row with him later on because Sarah told me this week that he would, he'd come out in favour of the decriminalisation of drugs. I was horrified and said we have to get him on the show to answer for that. But before we get to that, this was the week when there was yet another sort of reversal in Ireland for what you might term woke culture, when um, after weeks of being decried as far-right extremists, the band of parents who object to certain books being uh, recommended to young children in Irish schools and, and in Irish libraries got a big victory this week when the Department of Education announced that it would no longer promote a book called This Book is Gay to children in schools. It was also the week where Nicola Sturgeon, the former uh, former First Minister of Scotland, uh, was kind of recast as a member of the 1990s Channel 4 soap opera Brookside, where the Gardaí, <clears throat> so the Scottish Gardaí, started digging up her back garden, searching for something or other. And uh, in international news, Sanna Marin ceased to be the Prime Minister of Finland. So there's a lot to talk about. Sarah, did anything else catch your eye or, or is that enough to be going on with? I think that's plenty to be going on with. I'm looking forward to... Uh, everyone who listens to this podcast getting a flavour of the kind of arguments that Keith and I are having that only our neighbours get to listen to. <laughs> hello, 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 John, and thank you very much for the invitation uh, for of coming on to the podcast this evening. Hello, Sarah, um, long-time listener and first-time <laughs> caller. Um, it's, uh, it, is, it is nice, John, for you to give me equal billing to Sarah. It, it's so rare these days I get equal billing to Sarah. I know. I know it's uh, it's it's tough. I'm married to somebody who's very successful in her own field as well, and it's a uh, it's a challenge. I tell you. I'm, anyway, I was actually I was actually just talking about in in this house, to be honest. Oh. <laughs> anyway, look, we will um, we'll kick off the discussion of topical issues by turning to the uh, to the to the to the the book burning, as some would have it, slash discussion about what's appropriate with children as others would have it. Um, I'll start with you, Keith. What did you make of, uh, as a father of young children, uh, have you read this book or seen any of the passages in this book that was until this morning, Thursday, uh, being promoted by the Department of Education to children in schools? Yes, it was It was fascinatingly bad, wasn't it? Um, we we had um, a situation where, you know, the, 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 the people who were promoting this um, this book were effectively saying, well, this just forms part of an holistic sex education for children from the ages of four to 12. Um, why children who are four to 12 need an holistic sex education, I don't know. Um, although, as you probably heard recently, President Michael D said that um, sexuality, adult sexuality in all of its fullest should be taught to children uh, for some reason that only he understands. Um, but this book was, um, you, you, if you call this sex education, it really, uh, I've been on the planet now 50 years and I've really had a sheltered life if this is sex education because um, I was I was intrigued to discover words like um, fisting and rimming and uh, um, there was another one, scatting, which is apparently eating poo for sexual pleasure. So this, this, was, a, this was a book oh, of gosh. certainly the most comprehensive, comprehensive 
adult sexuality that I think anybody could ever have read, let alone four to 12 year olds. Why anybody in the Department of Education thought that this was a good idea can be left only up to the uh, better minds than mine. Um, But the the great news is, and I saw a protest actually on Twitter um, from parents yesterday um, on the streets of Swords, uh, where they were getting a lot of cars driving past them, beeping their horns in in support, where they were saying, take these books out of schools. Um, But it was a taste of the national outrage, which um, was evident on social media as passages from these books and pictures and diagrams from these books came out on social media. And, and, And just... We're stunning. We're just stunning. And it, it was just, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I would never consider myself to be, um, you know, a delicate flower when it comes to sexuality. But this stuff was bewildering. It was almost comical. Had it not been for the fact that it was being uh, going to be taught to children, it was almost comically bad. Um, well, my- and I was, I was delighted to see the Department of Education uh, pull it. Um, and again, another sign that it, a small pushback scares are are those in power it scares them because they kind of know that they're on the fringe they kind of know they're maybe getting away with it maybe not getting away with it and the tiniest of little pushbacks from middle ireland and they immediately fold which is which is heartening to see actually i uh, I, I thought the funniest thing that happened this week actually was in relation to this story was when philip Boucher hayes who's standing in for joe duffy on liveline had a woman on who was talking about this book and Philip was being, you know, he was he was taking what we might call the orchid position on this, which is kind of like, you know, are you not being slightly prudish? And, you know, we all, you know, the kids have to learn somewhere that if they're not learning this, they'll be learning it from Pornhub or whatever. And the woman decided that she was going to start reading some passages of the book out on air. And she got to a particularly fruity bit, which I won't repeat. Um, it was kind of in the flavour of what you were talking about a minute ago, Keith. And Boucher Hayes had to cut her off. He said, no, no, absolutely not. We're not having this language on air or words to that effect. <laughs> uh, absolutely astonishing that the book can be read to 12-year-olds, but it can't be read to adults on Liveline, which I think says it all. Um, but anyway, Sarah, how do you think it made its way into, into school? So I have a theory on this, which I'll come to in a second, but I want to, you haven't been in the conversation. so. Oh, I, that's interesting. I don't have a theory on how it came into schools. I just, I, I, I think it's like part of a pattern of ongoing comedy that I find, which is that if it's, you know, if it's approved by the right people, it's fine. And if it's not approved by the right people, it's not. Mm-hmm. So these books are approved by the right people and you're, you know, somehow right, you know, part of the alt-right if you want to not have this book in schools. But Labour were trying to get To Kill a Mockingbird removed from schools for secondary school because that was hurtful and hurt people's feelings only a couple of years ago. But this book is somehow acceptable and it's farcical. And also, it like some of the content is, you know, it, it sounds like it's been read out from some of the darkest sites on the internet. And why this this movement that is consumed with teaching not just sex but like explicit sexual stuff to children is beyond me utterly beyond me and 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 you know there's this keith's right like when there's a pushback they kind of they seem to fold or whatever but like this is an obvious one and 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 they really they just got caught like if if people had online hadn't kind of started to take photos of the inside of that book and show exactly what was in it, we would have, everybody would have been afraid. 
this book is gay. They would have been afraid to be accused of being homophobic if they mentioned it, and it would have just sailed through. That's it. That's, it also. That, it also. You know, I, I think knowing a, a good a lot. I you know. I feel like I'm saying like I have this black friend who, but knowing a lot of gay people, I'm sure they would not like to have been represented by that book because that that book, you know, mentioned gay sex and you know gay sexual practices whatever but a lot of them were absolutely outlandishly nothing to do with gay sexuality i mean mm -hmm. there were the most extreme forms of sexuality as sarah said from the darkest corners of the internet and you know if you were gay i'm sure you were looking at that book in equal bewilderment thinking how is this supposed to be representative of us yeah and it's not but sexy. it's the same way it's the same way that porn so one of my arguments against uh, Heter what heterosexual porn represents about human sexuality is that it suggests that things are on the menu um, you know, and, and normalizes certain acts that lots of young females don't want to do and makes them feel pressurized to do them. And I felt like some of the stuff in this book was probably doing the same for homosexual boys or, or girls or whatever, who, who all of a sudden all of this stuff is being normalized. And I don't think that that's right. Certainly not for kids. But it just felt seedy and weird. And it's more of the same stuff, which is like pushing, pushing the limits, pushing the limits of what's normal. And you're a bit right wing if you don't agree with this, pushing the limit of it all the time and getting people to accept, you know, further and further limits of, of what would have been considered before it, to be, before it to be highly inappropriate. Yeah. So for me, I mean, and I have a piece coming out on this, today, which should be out by the time the podcast comes out. To me, I think you you touched on what my theory is. My theory is that no one in the Department of Education read this book. Um, in that they, what they do these days is because every department has its diversity, equality, and inclusion agenda. Um, and you, we know the Department of Education works with a whole range of of LGBT groups. And I, by the way, when I say that, I don't think these groups necessarily represent all gay people, but groups like yeah. Belong to and Tenny and so on and so forth. Somebody came in, said, these are the books we think uh, young kids should read to be more au fait with, with um, issues for LGBT young people. The department has its checklist, um, improve um, awareness of LGBT issues for young people. And they, they basically outsourced this. And further, I think, as you alluded to, the number, the worst thing you can be in Ireland today, the worst thing is any kind of homophobe or, or even short of that, just being a prude. And I think if you're a politician or if you're a civil servant in a department sitting in a meeting with these people when they push this book across the table, if you're the, you don't want to be the one who says, well, actually, I don't know if this is appropriate because you're outing yeah. yourself immediately um, in very rarefied company as somebody who might be a little bit backwards in their attitudes, maybe not necessarily progressive, maybe not with it. So you keep your mouth shut and wait for it to be someone else's problem. I think that's and that that I think is 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 a, is an issue not just in education but right across politics. This fear of being seen to be in any way backwards, so you keep your mouth shut and you let everything sail through, because no one's going to stand beside you if you're the one coming out saying this isn't appropriate for young kids. But there'll be a hundred people lining up to say that you're some kind of Mary Whitehouse type figure who wants to uh, drag us all back to 1950s sexual morality. And this fear in the country of standing up and saying, actually, I think this goes too far, um, is absolutely extraordinary, I think. And I think that's 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 what's causing it. I think that's what's causing and uh, 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 That's why it's interesting that the backlash to this isn't coming from the ruling class. It isn't coming from the, the media. It is coming almost entirely from ordinary parents. And you saw that in the response to the new 
sex education curriculum where the NCAA, which is responsible for drawing it up, got flooded with submissions from actual ordinary parents saying, no, we don't want this nonsense in our schools. And that curriculum is now buried somewhere in the Department of Education while they figure out how to get around what parents said they didn't want. Yeah, but it comes it comes back to what I was saying at the start about, you know, any element of pushback on this and the establishment tends to fold. And I think it is totally true to say what you said, that this is widely across the civil service now, this um, DEI, diversity, equality and inclusion agenda, the DEI agenda. This DEI agenda has been handed to all the departments. They're all terrified of being seen as, you know, inadvertently, you know, transphobic, homophobic, uh, misogynistic, you name it. There's a list of, of sins, of modern day woke sins. So there's um they're terrified of that and so nobody as you say is saying anything everybody is just sitting still sitting on their hands but at the same time as wide as this is it's puddle deep because everybody actually thinks that this is nonsense and so even though they're afraid to say it the minute that they get any kind of political cover and i.e parents pushback and social media pushback they can immediately turn around and say, actually, maybe they're right. You know, and so this is widely across government, but it is puddle deep with support. Well, let's hope you're right. I sometimes fear they just go away and regroup and figure out a different way to do the same thing. But we won't spend the whole show talking about it because we talk about these issues every week. Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Brookside on the whatever river, river it is that goes through Edinburgh. We really should know that. But um, what did you make of the phenomenal phenomenally weird scenes in, in, in Scotland this week. I mean, it looked like, and I mean, we know it's not that, but it looked like the police thought that Nicola Sturgeon's husband had buried a body in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, there's um, there's £600,000 of money that should be in the SNP's coffers that was fundraised for a second referendum. Um, so £600,000 has gone missing. So somebody has moved it somewhere. It may be resting in an account or it may oh. be resting under an azalea bush. We don't know. Um, but somebody has moved it. And uh, the police are looking for where that might be. Um, understandably, it's not um, small change. So it's not something that can be explained away simply. Um, so they're looking for the money. Um, for some reason, they've decided that they want to dig up Nicola Sturgeon's garden to have a look and see if maybe it's there. And Nicola Sturgeon is not under investigation uh, for this, not under suspicion. But her husband has been arrested and he's being questioned by Police Scotland about this missing £600,000. He was the CEO of the SNP for a number of years and resigned there, thereabouts, around the same time as, as Nicola surprisingly out of the blue resigned last month. And Everybody was quite perplexed as to why she resigned. She said, oh, she'd been thinking about it for some time and it was just time to move on. And there wasn't any particular thing and uh, it's just time to go. And people surmised it was something to do with a bit of a faux pas she made about a a transgender prisoner and stuff, but it never really seemed substantial enough to me to warrant her resignation. I was always a bit suspicious as to what the real reason behind it was. Um, So uh, she didn't have that old favourite that other politicians have of, wanting to spend some time with her family because she didn't have any kids. So it was um, it was always a bit sus- suspicious to me. Um, and now this investigation has just broke a few weeks after she resigned. So 
I'm beginning to wonder if maybe she might have had a bit of a heads up as to what was coming. I am. All I can say on this story is that I am refreshing the Irish Times every hour to to see the Fint No Tool column about, you know, <laughs> the state of British politics and the state of the state of the disgrace and the criminality and all that. There's no sign of it. I mean, I'm just imagining what the situation would be if this were Boris Johnson's garden oh, yeah. being dug up by the police. Can you imagine the humdinger of a Fintan O'Toole column that the nation will be treated to about this, the, the absolute degradation of British politics and how far we'd all fallen? But this is, of course, Nicola Sturgeon, very progressive lady, pro-European, uh, wants Scottish independence, which we were told a couple of years ago was an absolute inevitability and certainty definitely going to happen because of Brexit. Um, and, you know, you could... It's all been reported, of course, in the Irish media. It's been sort of soberly, soberly acknowledged that there are odd goings-on, Shay Sturgeon. But, I mean... The, it, it, the, the double standards, which we should be used to, if the Irish media didn't have double standards, it would have no standards at all. But it, it's astonishing um, that it's, it, 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 I just, I asked listeners to imagine, I mean, contrast it, and I know we want to talk in a moment about Donald Trump, but contrast the, the, the media's attitude to um, this investigation, to the investigation and Regular listeners will know I'm not a Donald Trump fan, but what I think a lot of people agree are fairly trumped up charges. Pardon the pun. Oh, good pun. Uh, about that, that, that he's facing for apparently concealing a business expense. Um, and and in the Irish Times today, we had a column. Sorry, I don't want to make this the Irish Times bashing contributions show, but we had a column there about how Donald Trump is a uniquely dangerous figure, which he may be, but he's he's accused of a lot less than the. The family of the former first minister of our nearest neighbour, Scotland. Um, so I, I just find the media's attitude to all this sort of stuff bananas. Do you have anything to add to that, Sarah, or did I cover it all? Are you surprised, though? I mean, it's not just Fintan, it's all of them. There's nothing. Nothing. If this was Donald, if this was Boris Johnson or any, any Tory or whatever, it would be splashed across, there would be constant commentary on it they would be they would be refreshing their pages hourly with updates on it but it's not because she's on the right side of 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 everything as far as they're concerned so look let's wait and see what happens but uh it's the usual the same old same old like you know if you're on the right side you can do whatever you like mm. but she's the latest um the latest media darling of the of the left to fall um, we've had a couple, a few, three dominoes now. We we Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand who lost an election, Nicola Sturgeon who's resigned in questionable circumstances now, and uh, Sanna Marin, the Finnish Prime Minister who's just lost an election as well. So it turns out that voters don't read the Irish Times, and certainly uh, <laughs> it, it surprises Fintan, I'm sure. It's funny. I saw um, I saw I saw this week in Jacinda Ardern's final speech getting. Um, the Irish Times also tweeted it about seven times. They got like no likes every time, but they tweeted out Jacinda Ardern's emotional final speech. And I was just asking myself, does anyone know the name of her successor? No. It's Chris Hipkins, by the way. But but like, no, nobody nobody knows. I mean, the, and the guy is, for the record, he is just as progressive. Um, he's he's very um, right on and with it. And no one knows the name. No one cares because he, he couldn't. Is, he couldn't define what a, he couldn't define what a woman was in a press conference the other day. So he's really super progressive. He's great. He's, he's exactly he's exactly what you think. But 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 you know, it's there's something about um, 
the the Irish media can't get enough of the idea of the young progressive woman. They cannot get enough of it. They're gagging for it. Santa Marin actually, I thought, was quite unlucky in that um, she lost, but it wasn't her fault. Uh, her own party actually gained votes or stayed relatively steady. It was the Greens and the hardline socialists that she was uh, in power with who collapsed, leaving. Yeah, because she group. because she took their vote. Yeah, she so. So I mean the the ones who survived the ones who thrived in that election were the the right and the so called far right, um. So the, they they got each got slightly over twenty percent each. She got just under twenty percent, but she cannibalized everything on the left. So that's why they that's why they all lost out. Um. But it's um. It, 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 you're right. It is it is remarkable how Irish media in particular is fascinated with the progressive female leader. It is the you know the era of the woman and it's the you know this this whole this whole notion. I mean, I'm sure if you look at the Irish Times coverage of the Labour Party conference, for example, they consider Ivana Bacic to be the Taoiseach in waiting. You know, it it just doesn't gel with what the rest of the population think, uh, which should give them pause to thought, but I don't think it will. Yeah, another fascinating story just on that topic over the last couple of years has been the absolute, uh, we'll talk about US politics for a second. I know this has been a bit of a sort of wide-ranging conversation this week, but it is interesting, I think. If you if you look at the fate of Vice President Kamala Harris, who, when she entered who? the president, <laughs> <laughs> when she entered the race for the Democratic nomination a couple of years ago, she got in way ahead of Joe Biden. And uh, people might remember at the time the the bigging up of Kamala Harris. She was she was a black woman. She was progressive. She was a lawyer. She's in California. She's hugely successful. She's going to be a dominant figure. She was the runaway favorite actually before Biden got in to be the Democratic nominee against Trump in 2020. Uh, then she collapsed. She flamed out of that primary election before Iowa, and she's been arguably the weakest U.S. vice president in any of our lifetimes. And her polling is worse than Donald Trump's and worse than Joe Biden's. So it, 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 there's something about the, a disconnect between the media, and it's not just the Irish media, but right across the world, the media's attitude to progressive female politicians and the voters' attitudes to them. Another example is the lady, whose name I can't remember, who led the British Liberal Democrats into the last election, um, ran as if she was a candidate for prime minister, then lost her own seat. I can't yeah, and of, and of course, the, And of course, the queen of it all, Hillary Clinton, you yeah. know, I mean, there was this notion that she was simply the president in waiting, and it, it, it was her turn, except. And then she lost the election. They just could not believe that people don't feel the same way they do. You know, it, it, it's an absolute disconnect with, with that the media have at the moment. I, you're right, glo like in the Western world, certainly. Absolute disconnect with what voters and the general public think, which goes back to this notion of the worm turning, which you guys discussed last week. Um, that you know, you, you do get that sense that you know the, the the population are beginning to get it just a little bit pissed off with this whole thing mm -hmm. and the woke wokeism and all the rest of it. They're beginning, and and we saw it again this week in Ireland with the the the, the parents objecting to this this book we discussed already. Um, so you know, the, the worm I feel is turning. I think that we've been fed a media line for probably eight to 10 years now. And people are just beginning to think, well, this, no, I'm not going to have this actually. And I, I really think that polit politics and politicians are the last to know here. Well, I, I have- just on I, the subject, sorry, John. 
Oh, well, yeah, before you come in, sorry, I just wanted to say uh, on, on this general topic of the worm turning is that I get worried when I hear people talk about the worm turning because while I agree with you, I am, I'm, I'm always amazed at the right's ability to fumble these things away. And I'm thinking specifically of Donald Trump because the mm. guy, guy who was arrested this week, he's been charged with whatever he's been charged with. And I, I do think those charges are trumped up, by the way. But he's on social media talking about defunding the FBI and defunding the Department of Justice. And his approval ratings are in the 40s. His disapproval ratings are in the high 50s. And yet and all, here's a guy who has gone from talking about building a wall and fixing trade and making politics work for the ordinary guy to talking about defunding the FBI and rigged elections. And, there are, and he's never been more popular with his own party and never been less popular outside it. And yet again, a very winnable election for the American right next year. I think they're going to throw away by nominating that guy again. Um, which just astonishes me. Um, and I do think that on the right, we have a problem with a disconnect of our own sometimes. Well, I, I say the right is obviously a broad church, but I, I think mm. I, I, I just think that sometimes, particularly with because the media is so radical in the other direction, our side have kind of gone radical in, too radical in some respects as well and have lost touch with the fact that there is an ordinary middle person in the US and everywhere else who just wants somebody sort of sensible. And both sides seem to be offering people lunatics at the moment. Yeah, well, that's why Biden won the election, because he appeared to be this, you know, safe pair of hands, this centrist safe pair of hands. Um, and it's why he won the nomination uh, for the Democrats, because the Democrats obviously put up a pool of absolute whack jobs. So <laughs> it, it's um, you're right. Is that there's been a, a, a kind of a balkanization of politics where the left have gone way left and the right have gone way right. And. You know, there is a, probably an opening for a, a bit of a sensible centre-right candidate who also can speak to the left a wee bit, a bit of a Tony Blair kind of guy. You know, I think that time is maybe coming around again. I don't think, and I think Keir Starmer is kind of a pale imitation of that, but I think he will he will take out the, the Tories of the next election. But the Tories appear to have gone too far right and have lost, lost the plot a bit. Um, but... Yeah, like I, I, I don't really know what what to say about kind of Irish politics in that regard because we've never really had a strong left and right. We now have all of the parties are on the centre left, all of them, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, everything. They're all being led by this kind of woke NGO agenda, but they're 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 basically all on the centre left. But we've never really had a far left or a far right wing, you know, in the country. So it's difficult to know on the Trump thing. I think that Trump. Will uh, will flame out? Actually, I think he'll burn out. Uh, I think in a primary, we'd say Ron DeSantis or something. I think Ron DeSantis will appear to be the sensible, safe pair of hands for the Republican base, and he'll take out Trump. The only danger is Trump is being is such a narcissist. He may run as an independent spoiler and then yeah. hand the White House to the Democrats again. If I can't um, win, nobody's going to win. That kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Sarah, but, um, we, we cut you off there a second ago. Would you? Would you oh, to sorry. Say something? Well, we're, we're, we've moved on, but I was just going to say about the, I should probably interject a bit on the female women in politics part and the Kamala Harris bit. I don't think, and I, I'm definitely not one to um, compliment or, uh, or uh, stand up for Hillary, that's for sure. But what I, one thing I would say in Hillary's defense is that I think that Hillary was knocking around politics long before a lot of this, you know, strong, woke, crap came into you know came into the sort of mainstream and I think that she did her she was subject to extensive scrutiny of herself as a politician um, as she was aspiring to run for president I think what's happened with Kamala Harris and it's happened with a lot of other 
female politicians is that often it's often the case that they are not subjected to the same scrutiny that they would have been they take boxes because they're women and then they're and then any attack on them is considered to be an attack on their womanhood uh on the fact that they're a woman and people they they, they get an easier ride in the in the in the in the lead-in and that's what happened with Kamal Harris you know black female lawyer tick 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 grant that's fine and I think her vice presidency has shown that she frankly just doesn't cut the mustard and she wasn't really subjected to the same scrutiny. And so the public didn't get to know her. She just ticked the right boxes. And now the public don't like her. And I think that if she had been a man, she would have been subjected to a much more rigorous, you know, testing in the media. And um, she probably wouldn't have been selected. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a very fair point. But we are short on time and we did want to have a row on the show. because We wanted to have a row with Keith. Sarah, we've been talking on this show in the last couple of weeks about the worm turning and values changing and, you know, all this, all this nonsense about citizens' assemblies and ramming proposals that probably don't want down our throats. And then you told me that your husband, a man who I think the world of, is actually in favour of this latest one and wants drugs decriminalised. Yeah. Um, which, He's a libertarian. Uh, yeah. What, what, can you not get cocaine or some, whatever it is up there in Malahide just on the on the, every street corner anyway? I don't live in Dublin, Keith, but I, I hear I hear it's not that hard to come by as it is. But look, the good news the good news is that even if you're down in the the boondocks where you live, you can still get it. Um, <laughs> it, it it it's half the point of what I'm trying to say. I mean, it's interesting because we agree on so much, um, but conservatives like yourselves and libertarians, we kind of depart on certain issues. Like we agree on like government should keep their fingers out of your wallet, but we disagree on the government should also keep their noses out of your bedrooms and out of your out of your out of your 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 um your your party rooms. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I always come from the drug. And first of all, I do, I'm not necessarily in favor of drug legalize, uh, decriminalization. I'm in favor of drug legalization. And it's important to get a, a distinction there because drug decriminalization is is um, is where the drug is no longer a criminal offense to to um, to to own um, and to carry. But you still have to buy it from a drug dealer because it's not legalized. So it can't be legally sold, but it can be legally held, which I think is a stupid way of doing it because what you're effectively doing is giving um, drug dealers carte blanche and handing the business over to them. Um, and, and so all you're going to see there are more internecine gang warfare because now it's not even a criminal offense for this stuff to be um, possessed. And so you'll you'll enrich drug cartels to an even bigger extent and you'll probably fuel um this internecine battles that go on the whole time drug legalization which is what they've done in many states in the in the united states with cannabis is where you have legitimate businesses that are set up legitimate companies they pay their taxes they subscribe to regulation which is another really important thing um if you go back to alcohol prohibition in the united states um, obviously, Al Capone and other guys were made rich by the fact that they, the government created a black market, that people had a huge demand for the product. And then these, these um, gangsters all became rich. And we're seeing exactly the same thing now with drug prohibition. We've made all of these guys, the Kinnahans and the Hutches, extremely wealthy. Um, and we've created a market for them. And drug uh, decriminalization, we just hand the market to them completely and totally and put a bow on it. 
drug legalization takes it away completely. And that's what we saw with alcohol prohibition. When it was repealed and you had Budweiser being set up and you had Coors Light and all these guys, they came in as big companies and they wiped out the Al Capones of this world. They, they brought in, you know, uh, corporate muscle, corporate money and just basically destroyed them where the legal system couldn't. Big business did. Um, and so the other thing that happened was a lot of people died in al during alcohol prohibition from alcohol poisoning. And that was because there was no regulation on what you were drinking. You didn't know what you were drinking from one Saturday to the next Saturday. You go down to your local, um, your local kind of, uh, uh, it's not called a she-bean. What did they call it in the States at the time? Mm -hmm. um, bootlegging, was the, bootlegging was the name of it. No, but it was the illegal, the illegal drinking den. I can't remember what it was. They had a word for it. But um, basically, you went down there on one Saturday and you drank five pints of whatever. And then you drank down, went down the next week and you had five pints and you died. And it was because there was methanol mixed in with it. The concentration of alcohol that was in it might have been 4%, but then it was 14%. It was completely all over the place. There was no regulation of the, of the quality and quantity of uh, active substance in it. When they repealed prohibition, the numbers of alcohol deaths plummeted because it was the only thing that was legalized was 4% beer. So all of the, the breweries said, well, we're not going to book the trend here. We're, just, we're not going to go against the government. We're just going to have 4% beer. Customers got used to drinking 4% beer. We still all drink 4% beer. And you knew what you were drinking from one day to the next. There was no methanol mixed in it and there was no high concentrations of alcohol. You didn't get involved in accidents, blah, 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 blah. Some people do still, obviously, fine. But the numbers plummeted after. And you'll see the same with legalization, not decriminalization, but legalization of drugs. You would see the quality of drugs and the concentrations of drugs being standardized. So the numbers of people who would die inadvertently from taking drugs will fall in exactly the same way. So you won't have high concentrations of cocaine one week, low concentrations the next, high concentrations of cannabis causing um, like this skunk cannabis, which is the one that's linked to psychiatric conditions in particularly teenage boys. Um, that is high concentration, synthetically high concentration cannabis. Normal, natural, if you like, um, cannabis doesn't have that concentration. You could regulate for that. And so for me, when I look at drug uh, legalization, I always look at it from where are we today? Are we in the Al Capone Wild West days where people are not knowing what they're taking? They're dying. We're handing the, the business over to criminals to, to profit from. That's where we are now. And where could we be? Is it better or is it worse? I think it will be better. And if we just close our eyes to this, bury our heads in the sand and keep going as we're going. We're not going to change any of that. And this is the point typically where hardline conservatives, the likes of Christopher Hitchens come in and say, well, actually, we just haven't gone hard enough on people and they should just be just saying no or go to jail for 50 years. They kind of did that in America. I mean, the prisons are full of guys who were given life sentences for, you know, a third possession, a third time possession of cannabis. And they were given, you know, three strikes and you're out. It doesn't change anything. And it doesn't change anything for one fundamental reason. And I'll finish on this. The reason that people take drugs. What is the reason that people take drugs? The reason is it feels nice. It's good fun. And they like it. And you cannot take that away. You're never going to take that demand away. And so we just have to come up with a better way of satisfying that demand within society. So I've got a couple of questions. Uh, and I mean, I think you made a really good case there. And for full disclosure, I, I actually agree with you. In some respects, uh, I was in Prague recently where in, in convenience stores, pretty much like your local spa or center here, you can buy um, cannabis, you can buy leaves, uh, you can buy, I, 
I'm not familiar with cannabis language, but I saw leaves and I saw something look fairly solid. Anyway, I'm a schoolboy. <laughs> I don't know what any of that stuff is, but it was for sale in, in convenience. And, and as it relates to cannabis, I kind of agree with you. But my question is what the limiting principle is, because I go into the, um, I occasionally suffer headaches and I take neurofin plus for them. I go into my pharmacy and I ask for neurofin plus and I have to literally answer about 45 questions from the pharmacist. Okay, maybe not literally, but it feels like 45 questions uh, because of how addictive um, the codeine in neurofin is. That's a drug that's legal uh, and is highly regulated, but it's it, it's it's almost impossible to get because um, because of the addictive properties of it. So my question is, do, do, question one, does your legalization extend to perhaps the most destructive drug which can commonly be found in the streets of Dublin, heroin? And if so, why does it not also apply to morphine, which is a sister drug to heroin, which can be taken from hospitals? Should you be able to buy morphine legally in the country if you kind of feel like it? Yeah, well, uh, as you probably know, morphine and opium and all that kind of stuff were legal before. So they were, they were, there were morphine um, opium bars. And, uh, you know, in the 1800s and 1900s in the UK and Far East and blah, blah, blah. OK. Um, and the, the thing about um, heroin is that it is such a niche, small drug these days. Very, very few people decide on a Saturday night that the best thing for them is to take some heroin. OK. I think you would have to accept that heroin is a drug apart from most other drugs in that it seems to be related to people who are typically in psychological pain who are who are almost kind of bred into it and it it is in pockets of the city it has never really gone mainstream it's never really been a middle class drug it it's um it's very much a niche drug and it causes huge devastation for the for the people that are involved in it and their families but but that is generally related to the criminal aspect of taking that drug so for example to satisfy a heroin addiction you have to do an awful lot of stealing. You have to do a lot of mugging, a lot of burglaries. And the courts are full of people who are there because they were mugging people, robbing people, burglarizing houses to feed a drug habit, which is the comment you always see. That drug habit is typically heroin. OK, and now can I and as I said to you, I always look at this from here we are today and we have a better tomorrow. My better tomorrow for heroin is this. You you effectively give it for free through doctors, okay? And so your GP can prescribe heroin in precisely the same way as your GP can prescribe methadone, which is another addictive opiate. The only difference between methadone and heroin is that politicians have decided that methadone is something that they can sell to their constituents. So they can provide it for free, they give it to heroin addicts, it does it, it satisfies their cravings, but the one thing it doesn't typically do is give them the same level of euphoria. And so it's a moral choice by politicians. Well, we're giving it for free, but they're not getting a kick out of it. Okay, so there's there's a kind of a, a strange thing where we will we will give one opiate for free to people who suffer from opiate addiction, but we won't give heroin, which is actually what they want. So instead, we say, well. It's okay that they go out and burglarize houses, mug people, hold syringes up to people in the street, fill the courts, fill the courts, fill the prisons, fill the prisons. They, they, we're, we're okay with that because we're taking a moral stance. Now, I'm saying to you, that's today. Imagine tomorrow where heroin is legal to own by, with prescription from your doctor. 
you go in, you say, look, I'm a heroin addict. I'd like some heroin. They give you heroin. All of the safety precautions that are available to you are that, number one, the concentration of the heroin is known to you as opposed to now. The heroin has not been tainted or, stain or spoiled with, um, for example, you're not sharing needles, HIV, hep C, et cetera. So it's, uh, it, and you're, you can also take it in controlled environments, whether they're injection centers or whether they're just family who are, uh, who are trained in the use of Narcane, which is this reversal agent for the opiates, okay? So we can have a better tomorrow, even with heroin. Even with heroin, you can have a better tomorrow than we have today. And also better for everyone else, better for the prisons, better for the courts, better for people walking down the street late at night, better for people who don't want to be burglarized. So, well, No, I'm going to cut across you there because you, you, you've had a lot of time now to make your case, but there's something I'm not convinced by, which is that I am, as you say, a conservative, and I do believe that there's a moral aspect to policymaking. So when you say, you know, we should give heroin addicts heroin for free, I just instinctively, it's not that I object to the money or the idea of giving people necessarily things for free. It's that I think it would be considered morally repugnant if we were to start offering alcoholics whiskey for free. And it seems yeah, to me to be, no, let me finish. It seems to me to be just writing off a section of society and saying, well, you're never going to recover from your addiction. So we'll just give you your addictive substance. You go and doze away your life in a corner and we can say, well, at least you haven't got HIV. That, that, well, and, I mean, I I, say, I, 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 and let me finish the point by acknowledging that I don't necessarily have a better solution than yours, than yours. But I do want to say that there's something that just doesn't sit right with me there about your argument. Well, if I was to give you the moral uh, reason for it, the, re the moral reason, the positive moral reason for what I'm saying is, is this. It, it is it costs the taxpayer money to give them heroin. It, it is a fraction of the cost that we have today in managing through the criminal justice system heroin addicts. So you're talking a tiny percentage of the cost by simply giving them the heroin, as opposed to letting them run rampant in society and costing us in so many ways um, through the courts, through the criminal, uh, through the prisons, and also just the, the misery they cause for other people. So yeah, but the, moral case I would give, the moral case I would give to you is that John McGurk doesn't have to worry about being burglarized or mugged. You know, uh, doesn't have to worry about having an, a, a needle stuck in him. That's the moral case for giving the drug to somebody who's addicted to it. On the, you're just deserting them to their addiction. It is far, far easier to deal with people within a system when it comes to saying to them at every single juncture that they go to the doctor to get their prescription, at every single time they go, they're offered the opportunity of getting off the drug, detox, going off it, because they know themselves by the end that they want to get off it. A lot of them, some of them don't, but a lot of them do. And if they're within the system, if you bring them into the light, as opposed to leaving them in the dark corners of society, if you bring them into the light, you're far more likely to get people off the drug. Sarah, you've been shut out of this conversation. Do you have, what, what, what would you be saying if, if we weren't on air and he was going on about this in the living room? What would you say to him? Well, John, you see what I have to put up with. <laughs> like, um, no, what, one of the things that I think Keith is just too, like kind of similar to you, like I, I go a long way with it, but I think he's, he's defeatist about the individual. Like they're kind of, lost causes and it's just a bit too kind of well now we have to just accept that they're heroin addicts and that's it but also my main argument with Keith and and, and this applies to a number of his libertarian views on other things as well um which is that when you legalize things whether they're drugs or prostitution or even abortion and things like that 
you change the culture. You send a message in your in your change of law that something is acceptable, not acceptable, or whatever it might be. And I think that saying that, you know, heroin and all these drugs are legal kind of would change the culture. I don't believe, and Keith and I have had this debate loads of times, but I don't believe that if on the first day of next month all drugs became legal that there are not there would not be a huge amount of people who would do drugs more drugs because they were legal and Keith disagrees with that but that's my feeling I think that laws change culture they send message they say things that to people that are that that you know fun of who we are as a people and what we fundamentally do and don't accept and I think that saying that heroin is now legal just sends a message that I'm not comfortable with and as Keith says you know it's all very well you know like cocaine is the drug that cocaine becomes illegal but the majority of people who are doing cocaine are spending a hundred quid and you know they're like they have the money to do cocaine on Saturday nights and they're doing it recreationally or whatever they're doing but the majority of people as Keith said who are taking heroin don't come, don't have a hundred euro. They're robbing people. They come from mostly poor backgrounds. They're, you know, they're, as Keith said himself, they tend to be in some kind of emotional turmoil. Mm. And, you know, a, a person who's suffering, for example, from suicidal ideation, you might say, John, or I might say as doctors, if they present at a hospital, that ultimately, if somebody is determined to end their own life, there's nothing really you can do about it. But if you're putting them into a room, you wouldn't leave a noose in there with them. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, but that, it's but like, we are doing that. But we're doing that. See, this comes back to today, the reality of today versus the, pro the prospect of tomorrow. The reality of today is that's exactly what we're doing. We're deserting them. We're saying to them, look, you know, you are cast out from society if you will not obey our rules on this drug. They love this drug far more than they love the rules of your society. And so you're in a way forcing them to go out break more rules in your society to get to their drug and at the same time in no way are you stopping them from taking their drug there's there's never been a heroin addict alive that has just decided one day that this is immoral and i must stop i mean that's right. just but never act, happened but you're acting you're acting as if there's no services like you can still have services available to heroin addicts out within a, a, a within a country where those those drugs are illegal i mean we so have that as it is Correct, so, so, but, you can so, have, you, but you can have far more effective, you would still have the same, if not better services in a legalized situation where it's prescribed by a doctor, not sold in the spa, but prescribed by a doctor, you would still have a far better way of doing it because you would have those services that you speak of, you would have other services, but you would also be inviting the addict into those services every single week to get their drug. At the moment, we don't see them unless they overdose. So my, 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 I want to, want to, want to change the conversation, not change the conversation, but just explore what I think is a flaw in your argument, Keith, with you, because my issue with the legalization of the drug is that it won't get rid of the problems that you suggest it will. Because I want to give you an example. In your model, uh, and I know we've talked a lot about heroin, but, but um, I'll stay on it because it's an instructive example of what I'm about to say. Um, but we should talk about the, we should talk about the lighter drugs too, because, we, you know, very often the extreme, the extreme view doesn't really no, no, I, I, I actually have some sympathy with you with the light, lighter drugs. Maybe not things like MDMA, MDMA, which change your personality and perception of the world. I think they can be genuinely dangerous to society. You have somebody wandering around with a mind-altering drug. Um, I think that's. I think there, there are good reasons for regulating that. But uh, to make the point I wanted to make, in your model, heroin is legal 
Doctors can prescribe it. There's no judgment. It's um, it's a it's a legitimate choice for somebody to make to take heroin in your model. So let's imagine that I'm in a situation where I don't know what happens. My dog dies. The bank repossesses my house. I get really depressed. I decide I need something to change my mood. And I go into my doctor and say, I'm a 40-year-old man in relatively good health. I'm just in really bad form and I want to try heroin. Does the doctor <laughs> prescribe it to me? No, because if you think no, about but it... but then it's not legal. Like, uh, no, 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 no. If you think about it, well, I mean, at the moment, you can get any number of drugs from your doctor legally. I mean, it is legal. It's just that it's controlled. So if the way it would work with that is, I mean, again, it's such a niche drug. It's such a, a situation where nobody goes out on a Saturday night and said, I think I'll try a bit of heroin. Like, no, it just doesn't happen, okay? Cocaine, yes. MDMA, yes. Um, but you're suggesting acid. to legalize them as well, Keith. No, so yes, no, I am because they don't have the same effect on society insofar as you don't have people going out, burglarizing houses, breaking in, uh, um, uh, mugging people on the street. It's a, it, it is a, a really a standalone drug. I mean, if I we've, think that's we've, highly we've centered debatable. The whole, we've, centered, we've centered the whole conversation on heroin when really it is a, a standalone drug with its own issues over in the it, corner. It, it is to, so, it, it is a debating tactic to take the most extreme example and talk about exactly. it. You're, 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 well, you're, cocaine you're right. then. Talk about cocaine. Like yeah, coke. right. You're, so like if, you, if, if you look at if you look at cocaine or I, in fact, the best thing to do is not even talk about the what ifs, but talk about the what happens. Right. And so drugs have been legalized. OK, drugs have been legalized in many states in the United States, have been legalized in, in Lisbon and Portugal um, have been legalized de de in. No, decriminalized in Portugal. Not legalized. Yeah, well, yeah. So you're absolutely right. Decriminalized. OK. Um, and that presents its own problems from the from the enriching of the gang situation. But it it does give us a, a, some indication of what happens to individuals. Sarah mentioned that she felt there'd be an upsurge in people trying all these kind of drugs and whatever. And that's exactly true. What happens is curiosity, obviously, of human beings. There is generally when a drug is decriminalized or legalized, a message is sent perhaps to society that this isn't as, as bad as we thought it was. And maybe you should have a go at it. And so what ha happened in Lisbon and what happened in Amsterdam when it was done donkeys years ago, decades ago, uh, what's happened in the Czech Republic, what's happened in um, multiple US states is that you do indeed see a spike in demand and use of the drug. Some debate that. Some say it's actually just visibility, which where there was no visibility before. But let's assume that there was visibility before and you do see a spike. But what happens is it, it falls again. So after six months of the drug being legalized, there's actually a fall in demand. And initially, this is the hilarious thing about Colorado. Colorado had budgeted for the tax that was going to come in from legalized cannabis. It's sold in shops and it's legalized as tax and all that. They had budgeted in their, in, their, in their line item, their budget for a certain amount of tax. And after six months, the tax take fell. And they, they were wondering what the hell happened. And it was because the demand that was set initially actually fell off. And it was the curiosity aspect just fell away. People said, well, it's not really for me. I didn't like it. I prefer my Budweiser. And they went back to their Budweiser. And so you do see a, a, an uptick in demand, in curiosity, but then it just falls again. And so, uh, and again, you don't need to necessarily be worried. Uh, a lot of people taking a drug on a Saturday night when our, our streets are full of people taking a drug on a Saturday night, alcohol. We have, it, it has its own problems, but we manage it as a society. And again, I would argue that tomorrow is far better than the current today. So I have a, a, a question, another question, because I have lots of questions. I think, I think to be fair, you've made the case here spectacularly well and about as well as it can be made. But I'm still not convinced for another reason. And my other reason I'm not convinced is that I want to know why, why 
The people who want to legalize all this stuff also are the people, by and large, and I'm not assigning this view to you, but they want to restrict and eliminate tobacco by about 2032 or 2033. So, so I mean... I, Cannabis, for example, which is a very light drug, very very minor mood altering effects. I think we'd all we'd all accept that. Long term use. Uh, there are lots of studies show that long term use has significant has mental health uh, issues associated with it in relation to paranoia and depression, all sorts of other things. But you know, on the face of it, fairly mild mood altering drug. But you, most people who take it smoke it, and they smoke it with tobacco leaves. And we're told that smoking tobacco is one of the worst things you can do for your health, and that's why we have to drive the taxes up through the roof crack down on the advertising of it, present it in plain packets, and have this national, like, ongoing, it's the war on drugs, the war on tobacco, which has been waged over the last 20, 30 years, has been extraordinary. And at the same time as that public health message, which and, and also other public health messages, don't eat fatty foods, uh, ban fizzy drinks for kids, um, let's have a fat tax. And yet, all of that, the same people, by and large, and I know you're not one of those people, Keith, but, but from the libertarian left, a lot of the people who favour all those things are also saying that, you know what we should do, lads, is uh, legalise ecstasy. I mean, what? Well, There's a huge contradiction in terms there. So, so is that, would you, would you price cannabis at the same price as a pack of 20 cigarettes or higher or lower? How much tax will be charged on it? Well, the thing is, I think you're confused uh, on many different aspects there. First of all, there's no such thing as the libertarian left. They're just lefties <laughs> who, like the, who like the word libertarian. Um, <laughs> So the but you're right, the, the, the nanny state has become emboldened over the last 10 to 15 years and nowhere more than Ireland. Ireland is the nanny state capital of Europe. We have the highest sin taxes on alcohol, tobacco. Um, we're, we're, we introduced the sugar tax. Um, you know, we were toying with this fat tax idea until the farmers slapped them down. So like we're, we're massively nanny state in our government is, has a massive nanny state instinct. Fine Gael, when they came in, are are Puritans at heart and they they really feel as though they should be able to tell the public what they should and shouldn't do, what they should and shouldn't eat, what they should and shouldn't smoke. You know, I mean, they're they're mad for it. OK, um, they have a junior minister in charge of public health who is like we used to give a, an award out. I don't know if you're aware of the nanny state award every year. Mm-hmm. And the, the nanny state awards were won routinely by the, the junior minister for public health because we, we had this fascination with controlling what adults could and couldn't put in their mouths. Um, but I don't believe they're the same people as the people that you're talking about who want to legalize um, soft drugs. It's typically soft drugs, decriminalize, sorry, decriminalize soft drugs across the Western world. That's a different cohort of people. And they are genuine libertarians. I think the libertarians... Um, Within the within um, within the right, the libertarians within the middle, the libertarians, you know, wherever they there, there's an instinct also a libertarian instinct and a nanny state instinct in in society. That aspect has been winning the winning the battle um, of of ideas simply because of one thing. If you remember, you guys, the conservatives, you had a good run of it in the 1980s and 90s with your war on drugs. Um, but what we've realised since the end of the 90s, is that the war is over and you lost. Drugs won. And so they tried everything to try and stop people taking drugs. And it just didn't work. It failed. And so when you fail, there has to be a, a moment where you think, right, okay, well, what else can we do here? And I think that's what's happening. It, the, the libertarian instinct is becoming mainstream on soft drugs. 
And then also you have people thinking, well, this is something we could tax in fairness. And that is what's happening with, with softer drugs. They're decriminalizing, they're legalizing simply because the war on drugs was lost and they're just, they're, they're now signing the peace treaty. Mm. Okay. Well, I think that's a good point to, to leave the conversation because we're running short on time, but uh, our listeners will have their, their opinions. I have my, I have to say, Heath has, has moved me a little bit in his direction uh, in this conversation. Maybe if, he, if he's moved you as well, he might let me know. Sarah, has he moved you? He wore me down to marry him. He's not going to wear me down on this. <laughs> Look, folks, as ever, thank you very much for listening to us. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. We'll be back next week. And I'm pleased to announce that in a couple of weeks' time, we will be joined by somebody who I think probably has a different view on the war on drugs. That is Mr. Kevin Myers. So we have that to look forward to. Um, for now, though, ladies and gentlemen, that once more was the week that really was. Thank you very much and have a great Easter. <laughs>